You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 24 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris, and Bob is somewhere on summer vacation, probably sitting on a beach somewhere drinking a nice frosty drink. Uh, but if this is your, if, uh, oh, I flub, I always flub in the beginning. We're coming to you from the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. And if this is your first time listening, thank you for coming. Uh, the Library Pros podcast is produced bi-monthly, so don't forget to check us out and subscribe to our RSS feed, iTunes, Google Play. And if you would like to subscribe uh, through our subscription service on our website, uh, which is www.thelibrarypros.com, we have links for Android email and email notifications, too. So you can also find links and notes from today's podcast on that site as well. And don't forget, we're on Twitter at, at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Today, joining us via FaceTime is Rebecca Stavick, the executive director of DoSpace in Omaha, Nebraska. The website for DoSpace is www.dospace.org. Rebecca's a librarian, civic hacker, and maker, along with a whole bunch of other things. And she's spoken at numerous conferences all over the U.S. and probably Canada, too, right? Oh, not yet. Not yet? <laughs> So oh, welcome, to the, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. Uh, we're speaking to Rebecca today about Do Space Nebraska and about what libraries can do to create a space for making on a budget. Uh, but first, we want, really want to talk about uh, Rebecca's journey with Library Land. So we're so excited, and I'm going to say it 100 times, I'm really excited to have you on today. Mm-hmm. And tell me about how you started your journey in the field of librarianship. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you so much for having me today. Um, I'm always kind of fascinated with this question, too, about how people get into librarianship. Uh, Because as we all know, a lot of people get into working for libraries um, as like a second career. Absolutely. Yeah. They just kind of fall into it. And I finished my bachelor's degree in history. And then I kind of had a like, now what? type moments, like, okay, what do I do with this degree? Like, I know I'm supposed to go to college, I'm supposed to, you know, check all those boxes. But um, having a bachelor's degree in history doesn't make you particularly employable. And so I, uh, you know, I took a look at some of my interests. And I thought, you know, it could be kind of cool to work in libraries. I looked at several grad schools. And I thought, you know, I'm gonna have to go back and get some additional education. And um, with a history background, digital preservation really intrigued me. Um, So I ended up getting into grad school and I did my MLIS at San Jose State. And I really. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Are you from California? (laughs) No, no. um, I'm originally from South Dakota, uh, from a small farm there. Uh, and then I moved down to Georgia into the Atlanta metro area when I was like maybe 12. Mm-hmm. I went to the University of Georgia for my undergrad and then San Jose State for my MLIS, which I did completely via like distance learning. Oh, okay. And, um, yeah, yeah, it was a great experience. But so I kind of fell into libraries through that way, kind of fascinated by long-term digital preservation, Uh, you know, that question of where is our digital content going to be in 500 years? 
you know, where's this podcast going to be in 500 years? <laughs> Probably in a garbage can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I find that really interesting. And we have so much work to do on that front. Um, I didn't end up quite in that in that role, but it's something that still fascinates me. That's really neat. So mm-hmm. what's your um, your tie to technology? Did, where, how did you get, in, you know, that background or how did you get into technology? You know, I have always been kind of a techie nerd. My family got a computer in 1995. And at the time, we lived on a farm in South Dakota. And what was funny about that was obviously we were on dial-up. But because we were rural, that dial-up was a long-distance call. Wow, really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, as you can imagine, our first month of having a computer was a very expensive month because we didn't know that it was long distance. Um, but throughout the you know mid to late 90s, um, I got a really solid foundation of computing, you know, experience using computers. My brother and I screwing around on our Gateway 2000. And, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think what, what was interesting about my childhood, though, is that I really didn't have anyone in my life who identified my interest in tech and uh, presented me with that opportunity of working in technology. And that's not anyone's fault, for sure. I uh, can proudly say that both my mom and dad were uh, total feminists. They were all about giving me all the opportunities possible. But um, I think there was just something about that time, really, even though that wasn't that long ago, uh, it was always kind of assumed that young men who were using computers, they were going to end up in tech, whereas young women using computers, maybe they're just doing it for social reasons. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I went off into college and did a degree in history without ever really thinking about technology as a path for me. Once I got into grad school, though, I really fell in love with it because, as as you know, and as many librarians know, that integrations between technology and information and information retrieval—they're just—it just goes hand in hand. And you know, books are technology, right? I mean, it's uh, libraries have always been about tech, and so I think I really fell in love with technology when I got into grad school, um, right about the time I was uh, graduating, though, from grad school, I co-founded the first Code for America Brigade here in Nebraska. Um, And we kind of co-launched it alongside an organization called Open Nebraska. And our goal was really to take a look at open data in the state of Nebraska and to see where we could improve as a community. And what I really loved about um, what we call civic hacking is that it's it's a community-led initiative to take these big data sets that the government and other organizations produce, these big data sets that really don't mean anything on their own, and getting that into the hands of talented uh, developers and designers, volunteers in the community, and turning that data into something that's readable and understandable by anybody. So there's a real, um, you know, there's a real close tie between, I think, librarianship and civic hacking because it's all about making information more accessible. So getting into the civic hacking movement and leading that here for several years, 
exposed me to the tech community here in Omaha, which I love. And the tech community here is really incredible, very talented, very inclusive. Um, so that's kind of kind of my background in, in tech. That's really neat. I, I'm not going to say anything about how you started with computers in 1995. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's cool, oh, though, because, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we all have to start somewhere, right? <laughs> that's true. Um, so what libraries have you worked in, and, and how did those experiences shape your vision of DoSpace? Sure. Uh, part of the time I was in grad school through San Jose State, I lived in South Dakota, and uh, so I worked as a volunteer at the um, SDSU archives department, and that was kind of my first taste of working in a library or archival um, uh, location. That was really fascinating, and I appreciated my time there, but I realized fairly quickly that archives probably wasn't for me. Um, I later moved to Omaha. I moved to Omaha in about uh, 2010, and I moved here without a job, but hoping to find something in libraries. And Omaha Public Library was looking for library aides just to shelf books and check them in and process them and stuff. And so I applied for that and I got that position. You know, a library aid position is typically minimum wage work. It's the bottom of the totem pole, if you will. But I appreciated the opportunity to have a job at all and also to learn libraries kind of from the bottom up. And so I worked at Omaha Public Library from 2010 until... 2015, February of 2015, I think, is when I uh, started in my current role. And during that time when I worked for OPL, uh, I was a library aide at multiple locations. I was promoted to library clerk, so I got some experience doing circulation and customer service. Then I later became a specialist doing more reference work, doing some collection development, um, and then later working in administration and doing staff development, uh, leadership development. I built out this whole leadership platform for the, the management team there. And um, I also kind of, at, at that time, you know, towards the end of the time I worked at OPL, I was also starting to do a lot of work in the tech community as well. So I kind of served as a bit of an unofficial liaison between the library and the tech and startup communities here. Um, you know, I went out and did some speaking engagements, and I was kind of constantly trying to think of new ways for the library to engage with those audiences. Because I, what I saw in the tech group that I was running was a lot of really brilliant people who didn't use the library at all, and it wasn't on their radar at all. And that really bothered me. So that was something that I worked on uh, at that time. And then it was in February 2015 that I was named executive director of Deuce so. That's really, really cool. That's a great story, too, because you really started from the bottom and worked your way up. Mm -hmm. That really is cool. Um, so what exactly is Deuce Nebraska? Is it Deuce Nebraska or Deuce Topeka? Did I say Topeka? I'm sorry. I, I'm, ugh, I always do that. I'm sorry. It's all right. Yeah, we just call it Deuce Space. Use Deuce Space, okay. Um, but there's only one location here in Omaha. Okay, Omaha. Okay. Um, so how did it get off the ground? Tell me about how that process started. Yeah, sure. So um, 
pre-Rebecca Deuce Face. So before, you know, February 2015-ish, Deuce Face was really a concept that had been fleshed out by several community leaders here in Omaha who work with nonprofits and work in the fundraising sphere and also um, the former executive director of Omaha Public Library. And the very first question, I think, that that prompted the development of DoSpace is, you know, how can we get more technology out of the community? Uh, you know, there's still a distinct digital divide in Omaha. The digital divide overall is not as severe as it was maybe 15, 20 years ago, but it's still there and it's still a community problem. And as a library clerk, I worked at our Washington branch, which is located in North Omaha, which is predominantly uh, a black community that has um, suffered from extreme poverty. And in that community, uh, almost every day, especially after school, there was always a wait for computers. Some people would wait 45 minutes to an hour for computers. And that certainly wasn't the only library in the whole system that um, had a shortage of technology. Uh, but that question of, you know, how can we expect our economy to boom? How can we expect to develop local technology talent if access is a challenge? And so community leaders came together and said, you know, this is something we can really move the needle on. Uh, so I think at the very beginning, uh, I think it was an access question. How do we get access to technology um, in a location in Omaha where it's easy to get to? So Do Space is located in the very heart of the city at the busiest intersection in the state. Wow, that's well, interesting. Well, yes and no. I mean, we don't have any c competition, right? Like, there's only two cities in Nebraska, so... <laughs> um, and we're the largest. So, but at any rate, uh, that piece of, of like, let's try to get increased access to tech was the first part of it. But of course, access isn't the only piece of it, right? Uh, learning experiences for everyone um, and everyone meaning people who have never used the internet before all the way through experienced web developers. You know, how can we just really level the playing field on tech learning so that you get that access and that learning piece. And that's where you can really start to make some change. So I'd say that's, that's really where the, the beginning concept came from. It really is cool because it's, it's a model that really doesn't exist um, the way it's structured. And for those of those people who don't know what DoSpace is, it's a giant makerspace, right? Or is, it's more than that, too. Uh, yes and no. Um, so within our building, this is a, you know, DoSpace was once a Borders bookstore. And although I, I was never, I didn't live in Omaha when it was a Borders bookstore. I swear it must have been the biggest one in the world because it was 28,000 square feet, which for a, for a bookstore is pretty big. It's is, two yeah. levels. And uh, when Borders went under, this building sat vacant at our, the 72nd and Dodge intersection where we're located. And the building basically just rotted for like four or five years. And... 
you know, when the project founders were taking a look at locations throughout the city where they could build or renovate a space, it was really vitally important since this is all about access and education, how do you make it as, as accessible as possible? Well, they decided to um, go in to, again, like the busiest intersection, which is also, by the way, kind of a transit hub for Omaha. I wouldn't say public transportation is robust in the Midwest at all, but our 72nd and Dodge intersection is a bit of a transit hub for our bus system. So it's really easy to get to that location through the bus system. Um, but at any, at any rate, the Borders bookstore sat vacant for a long time, and we thought that there was a lot of value in renovating that. Um, yeah. I can't remember the rest of your <laughs> No, uh, tell us more about what Space does, too. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. Oh, it's Friday. It's understandable. In, yeah. When you first walk in, you see a, a variety of things. We have a computer lab that kind of on first glance looks like a traditional computer lab, but the difference is that um, we have a variety of devices, a variety of operating systems, and it's all kind of mixed together. There's not like a PC section and a Mac section. We have all of that blended together. And um, we've got uh, some low vision stations, some accessibility stations for folks with low vision. We have some dual monitor stations that have um, access to some heavy design software like AutoCAD. And all of our computers have the full Adobe Creative Suite, um, SolidWorks, uh, all the different kinds of design softwares that are typically uh, prohibitively expensive for kind of like your average public library. So our computer lab, I I don't know if I call it a computer lab, but it's it's kind of a big open area with computers in it. It's 56 computers that are a variety of different types of machines. There's also a 3D lab space on our first floor. So that's what you would probably just call a maker space. We've got a handful of 3D printers and a laser cutter and a vinyl cutter. And we're definitely looking at some new equipment for that space into the next year or so. But um, it's kind of a, a enclosed room within the first floor so that if it gets loud or there's a group in there working on projects that it remains a little bit more quiet for the rest of the folks. Um, other things on that first floor are we have a room we call the Active Learning Lab. And we initially called that teen hangout room. And that, that, that connotates all kinds of different things, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it's just, it was kind of, we didn't really know what to call it. And what we discovered is that a lot of kind of middle school age kids loved that room. And it was, it turned into more of like a family space. And in there, we've got a large video wall with some video gaming capabilities. Um, so our staff have chosen some video games that have some kind of educational elements to them. And then we have a, another small room. It's called our Littles Lab. And that's for little kids, like little baby kids. And we have a Littles Lab program where kids will go in and um, it looks kind of like a story time where a staff member is leading the program at the front of the, of the room. There's a large touch screen 
uh, in that room as well. And so they do interactive games. They work with um, some of the really basic, uh, you know, uh, devices such as BeBot. I don't know if you've heard of that. That's a really cool thing. It just kind of teaches kids the logic behind coding. Mm-hmm. So it, kids really young can't learn how to code, right? It's just it's too tough for them. But if they can start to begin to understand how to issue those commands, so like a BeBot, uh, you know, you can press them up up, up, left, right type things. And the B-Bot will move on the floor and it's super adorable. Um, yeah, and then we have kind of an all-purpose meeting room. We also have a Dunkin' Donuts, which is great, great for the waistline. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so that's the first floor. I'd say the whole building is due space, but the second floor we lease out to Metropolitan Community College. And that partnership has been really awesome because it it enables us to offer Omaha an opportunity to come into that first floor, get exposure and access to technology. But if they really want to take their skills to the next level, they can go up to the second floor and get access to some more advanced tech training. Um, and there's also a certification center up there too. So let's say you wanted to get A plus certified, you can actually do that upstairs as well. So um, yeah, and that's kind of most of the building. We have two small conference rooms that people can reserve as well um, and some bathrooms. So <laughs> And an elevator probably, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's really amazing that you you have the community college there too because it gives greater access. Like you said, since it's a transit hub, I'm sure the community college may not be necessarily in the most accessible area for everyone. And, yeah. And you yeah. can actually um, just go downstairs, and if you need to type a paper or do something, you know, that's related to what's down there, you just go downstairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a great partnership. I mean it. I think it's really beneficial to both both organizations because we can kind of uh, amplify or scale up what we offer with this kind of collaborative partnership. So, so tell me how what it takes. I mean, do people become members? Is there a fee to join? I, I know you said before that it's to give access to everyone. So I'm assuming there's no fee, but is there like like a library card, for lack of a better way to describe it, that, that allows the person entry and, and things like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's all it's all free. So um, there is a due space card, and it does function really similarly to a library card. I'd say the most notable difference between a due space card and a typical library card is that because due space is entirely privately funded, we don't necessarily answer to like a specific taxpayer base, right? So like Omaha Public Library, they serve Douglas County residents because Douglas County residents pay taxes that support the library, of course. Um, but if you live outside of that county, you need to pay a fee for those services because okay. you haven't prepaid, right, sure. through taxes. Due space is privately funded, so we don't care where you live. Anybody listening to this could get online right now and get a due space membership wouldn't be super useful to you outside of Omaha, but we don't have that restriction. So why put it in place? 
Um, and that has really enabled us to expand our membership fairly rapidly. I'll say this too, and probably only libraries would, librarians would find this interesting, but our DueSpace card, the member activates it themselves, and we don't ask for an ID because a very basic DueSpace membership, um, we don't... Uh, we don't allow anything outside of our building. We don't check technology out into the community or books or anything like that. So there's very little liability, right? I mean, when you get a typical library card, you need to show an ID because if you go off and check out like 20 DVD sets or something, that could be like 500 bucks, right? Yeah, sure. So, um, with a basic two space membership, then you can access our computers go to our programs, everything. I mean, everything that DoSpace offers, you get through the membership. Um, there are two things, three things that you'd pay for at DoSpace. One is paper prints, 10 cents a page. Uh, the 3D filament that you use, if you're going to 3D print something and take it home with you, we need to replace those materials. So there is a fee for that. And then for our two conference rooms, if you are a for-profit business and you're looking to do kind of like a, a private meeting or a, a team building retreat or something like that, we will charge a fee for the usage of those rooms as well. Uh, otherwise, there are no other costs associated with membership. And that really is great because you're serving the community and doing it with really no expectation of taxes or anything else like that um <clears throat> so speaking of funding uh i know that it's a, a rather unique circumstance the way two space is funded can you tell the listeners a little bit about that yeah sure i would start by just saying that the philanthropic community in omaha is particularly robust Granted, I've, I've never done a project like this in any other city, um, so this may be the case in other cities, but um, I've kind of heard from other people feedback that Omaha really kind of invests in itself. There's a lot of high-level leaders here who are um, very, very invested in the success of our city. So that right away gave us an opportunity to create this project. At the very core of the project, working with community leaders, um, you know, this, as I had mentioned, this was really the vision of some core people, including the former Omaha Public Library director, uh, Gary Wasden, as well as some folks at a local nonprofit organization that works on really big community projects. Um, and what they do is basically do some fundraising and bring support to big community projects, and then um, also aid in the project management part of it. So when Juiceface was in a project phase, um, these leaders came to the table to help provide the vision and resources to make it happen. So, you know, Juiceface, I think, is a really interesting model, not necessarily because of the money raised, but maybe how it occurred. And what I mean by that is that I think that, that what we did in Omaha can help inform other libraries on how to raise money. I'll, I'll state right away, I don't have a background in fundraising. I mean, I was a librarian. Um, but 
there was a lot of conversations with high-level leaders and a lot of exceptionally talented people here who understood what some of those leaders want from the city, right? And knowing that those leaders want to see um, increased workforce development, increased economic development, being able to speak that language with really high-level leaders was absolutely key in the success of Do Space to be able to tie our project to these larger citywide and frankly nationwide uh, issues of lack of tech talent and um, you know how do we empower people to uh, learn more about tech, take their skills to the next level, and become inspired to get into technology. One of the things I like to talk about, you know, especially to local leaders here in Omaha, we talk a lot about tech talent because all the cities in the United States are kind of fighting over tech talent right now. There's not enough people writing code. There's not enough people who can lead tech teams. And it's really not just a national issue. It is a global one. Uh, you know, we are just in the past year, we're starting to lose a lot of talented tech people to uh, the UK and Canada and other countries. So uh, obviously our capacity to be economically stable really depends on our tech talent, right? I mean, it's just really a direct connection. connection. And so what I like to talk to, to community leaders about here in Omaha is that space is the very beginning of the tech talent pipeline in our city. You know, we are, we are not here to give someone a degree or a certification or whatever, but we are here to expose people to technology. And it's only through that exposure that people can become inspired and say, you know, hey, I might learn something new or, you know, maybe I could see myself working in the tech field. Um, so that's, you know, I, I really feel like some of those kind of key talking points can benefit libraries because public libraries, whether they have a tech space or not, directly contribute to workforce development and economic development and even the tech talent pipeline to some extent, for sure. So, um, yeah. <laughs> does that answer your question? <laughs> it does. And I think the, the big word that if you heard no other word, other than exposure. Exposure is the, I think, the biggest cog in that motor or in that engine. Without exposure to any of these things, people may not know about it or may feel that it's too intimidating or it's not for them. But And like you were saying earlier, with the kids, with the, well, the you use B-Bots, right? We have M-Bots and Osmo and stuff like that. So uh, it's that initial concept not necessarily writing actual code, but getting the idea of logic down and, you know, if-then kind of statements, ba very basic, basic, you know, ideas of logic. And once you get kids starting to think that way, once you get into the code, uh, of the, the action of teaching code, it becomes a little clearer to them. Mm -hmm. So the word exposure is a huge, huge thing, and it sounds like DoSpace is doing that on a big level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and libraries everywhere, they're kind of delving into those tech learning programs. You know, I think <clears throat> what's interesting about the learn to code 
movement that's that we're kind of right in the middle of is that you know I, I think it's probably likely that all of these kids learning to code probably won't actually be coding for a living because at that point computers will be coding themselves right or maybe not when they're entering the workforce but I mean, 40 years from now, 50 years from now, I think that our computing systems at this point are advanced enough that we're already seeing some of that machine learning and computers making their own decisions. And so, of course, to manage those systems, you need a basic understanding of how they work. But um, there is kind of a higher level part of that, of understanding the logic behind it and just even having awareness that computers are now venturing into that. Um, you know, one of the things I, I, I don't know if I'm concerned about at this point, but you know, when we get into a place in society where computers are making a lot of decisions for us, um, how can we create a population of people who remain engaged in monitoring those uh, computing systems and paying attention to what's going on. I mean, really, search algorithms already make a lot of decisions for us, right? Sure. So what's that going to be like in a few decades? I think it's going to be interesting. Well, it's always the model that, you know, people used to remember people's phone numbers. Now the phone remembers it for you. Now you just have to know the person's name once you program it in. I mean, and yeah. then there's, there's those people who, you know, bring up Terminator and, you know, Skynet. <laughs> and those kinds of things too. It's become aware. I just did an Arnold, an Arnold uh, impersonation. That's terrible. Uh, but you know there is that concern too. But I think the, the the core of what you're you're talking about is it's not necessarily in forty years writing code as much as it's debugging, troubleshooting, trying mm-hmm. to figure out maybe there's a better way to do it the machine hasn't figured out yet. Mm-hmm. So there's there's no. I, th- I don't think there's any replacement for human ingenuity in, in you know, the thought process. It's just a matter of, you know, where we, where we go once, you know, that artificial intelligence really starts to, to take its place in society. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be, you know, really fascinating. Hopefully sometime in our lifetime we'll get to see, see the power of AI in different ways. Sure. So I have to. I know this is off-roading. It's not really on the list of questions on the script. We say we never use. Uh, but how does the uh, the public library? Do you work in conjunction with them? Does this actually take? I don't want to use the word burden, but maybe a financial burden off of them, so they don't have to make such a big investment in technology. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, as a former employee of of Omaha Public Library. I'm a huge advocate on their behalf. And um, so we we have a partnership with Omaha Public Library, but we, we operate entirely independently from them. So uh, some of the things that we work on together, we do some sharing in terms of programming. Mm-hmm. So the OPL uh, kids librarians come in to do space once a month and do some just phenomenal story times in our little slab. Um, we've been doing that for, I mean, since we opened, so it's been a year and a half and they have just been consistently successful. And so we're really, really lucky to have them in the space. 
Um, and we also do our best to try to share access to the like digital resources that Omaha Public Library offers to the community through our computer lab area. So, you know, databases or digital resources that they have available through library card access, you can get on our computers as well. Not all, uh, you know, uh, digital databases, I'm sure, kind of different for for what each city uh, subscribes to and stuff. But, um, you know, our goal with that is really to try to shed some light on the really cool digital resources that OPL does have, um, while also benefiting the space members who come into our space. Um, you know, in terms of the technology piece of it, I'd say that, well, I, I don't know if space saves them money or not, I think that we refer people to each other. So occasionally when they have library patrons who need additional tech help, I know that they will refer folks to us, which we really love and, and vice versa. You know, whenever we get a question, I'll say we don't often get reference questions the way you might in a, a public library. But if we ever do, we always kind of refer those over to the librarians uh, you know, OPL has a business librarian and other librarians um, who have a subject matter expertise that we don't necessarily have, and um, they're just better better equipped with more information resources to answer mm-hmm. those things. So, yeah, so we have a really good relationship, um, and yeah. <laughs> that really is cool, because it's nice that you're working hand-in-hand hand and not, and they don't feel threatened or or and and the general population doesn't say well I don't have to pay my taxes because I can get it through due space. It's nice that it's a hand in hand reciprocal relationship that you have there. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that you know the this question of is due space a library um I get that question a lot. I've answered that question actually to two different audiences just this week. But um sometimes I call due space a library and sometimes I don't. I think that, that we exist in kind of a weird gray area between the library profession and the tech profession. Um, and I'm kind of okay with living in that area. I don't think we have to strictly define ourselves as one or the other. But I will say that um, being a librarian and um, knowing that several of our key managers are also librarians, you know, inevitably space has been built on those kind of core tenets of why libraries exist. Um, Libraries, of course, are also collaborative, free community spaces. That also applies to do space. And I like to press on that word a little bit and challenge what that word means, you know, a library. Um, But I will say that sometimes, you know, if we call ourselves a library in Omaha, some people do think we're part of Omaha Public Library, right? Because obviously... Like, oh, well, it must be part of that. And we're not, but um, are we a library? Uh, I don't know. So so sometimes that the communication to the community can get a little bit confusing if we call ourselves a library because they just assume that we're part of the public library system. So, Well, it's interesting that you bring up the idea of the, the actual title library because we brought up in this podcast in the past uh, the question of whether or not the actual term library may actually be a term that, although has marketing-wise a, a huge 
advantage because everybody knows what a library is. But the question is, are libraries what they used to be? And is the term library something that maybe a little in the past tense now, where it's library and community center, or community center and library, as you know, paper books go from being 90% of what we do to 50, 60% of what we do. And as we move further and further towards digital services and other services as well, but not the digital the, the types of services that you know you would see in a 1950s documentary about a library. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the question that I always like to pose is: Is the term library something that survives on its own or stands on its own anymore, or are we becoming more community center oriented? And I, I tend to think, although if you're talking about marketing and branding, library is a universally recognized term that is perfect that all marketers are looking for. But if it becomes a hyphenated thing, library and community center, community center and library, then, you know, that's always, it's a term of art that I just wonder if it's going to last another 30, 40 years. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I have heard some really kind of interesting debate on that same question of, you know, with all this rapid change in libraries, we, we kind of take a look at that that word and say, does this still represent us? And my opinion on the matter is yes. And the word library is super powerful. You know, I feel like you could ask just about anyone in the world what a library is, and they could basically answer it. You know, the the brand of the library, as you mentioned, is just from a marketing standpoint, um, you know, for-profit companies would kill for the recognition that libraries get. And um, I think for, for that reason and maybe some others, uh, I think we need to hold on to the word. Maybe what the word means changes, but the word itself remains the same. I, I say that too. I just don't think community center is strong enough. Um, it doesn't feel powerful to me. Libraries are ancient institutions, um, and there's a lot of power behind that, knowing that society needs a library to be a healthy society. Um, you know, I, I like to tie you know the, the very mission and the purpose of public libraries to healthy democracy and Uh, freedom of information, freedom of thought and knowledge. And I don't get that from community center, you know? Yeah, I hear you. I also don't get it from makerspace, to be honest with you. I think that makerspaces and tech spaces and all of that can, can fall under the word library and still make sense. Um, So I would say that I have occasionally called libraries community labs, uh, or kind of a, a community laboratory because of that, this, this kind of uh, spirit of entrepreneurialism and uh, experimentation and that kind of stuff. To me, that gives it kind of a, a lab vibe. But. Sure, that makes sense. And I always, you know, from a marketing standpoint, is library a title that's a active or passive word where community center you know, it, it kind of just lays there. The well, library, you know, kind of pops out from the wall a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this has been a great discussion. I'm glad you were able to explain more about DoSpace for those people uh, that may be listening that don't know. Um, 
And what I'd like to do now is just take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to speak to Rebecca about her experiences in making and how libraries can get involved with making, especially on a small budget. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back with Rebecca Stavik, the executive director of Do Space Nebraska. So let's talk making. Uh, the term always makes me giggle a little bit because it's such a weird way to describe, you know, makerspaces and creating. Um, but it is a trend in libraries. It's been taking shape for a while now. And yet there are libraries that are, have yet to embrace the idea because it is still a new idea for, for libraries, as we were saying in the last segment, that, you know, and I don't know if it's been in your experience as well, but uh, librarians do tend to not like change too often. Uh, so what do you think is the biggest impediment for libraries to take that leap to start the making movement? And it can be, doesn't necessarily have to be a 3D printer. Yeah. You know, I think one of the, the struggles for some librarians and maybe library directors is, is to understand how the maker movement fits within the vision of public libraries. And I will tell you, you know, years ago when I worked at Omaha Public Library and I, uh, I think I was a student at the time, and even though I took all the tech classes and everything in grad school, you know, the very first libraries that started to get 3D printers, I just thought that was like so hilarious. I was like, what? <laughs> so dumb. Why are you doing that? You know, because it just seems like a total fad. It, you know, it, at the beginning, I was like, yeah, these are just people trying to get in the news. Great, great <laughs> job, you know, but uh, little did I know I'd end up running deuce face, right? Like jokes on me, but you know, the, the thing about 3D printing and laser cutting and all the things that kind of fall within that makerspace movement, you know, I, I like to think of that as part of, you know, to me, a public library exists to provide access to information and to kind of ruthlessly promote literacy. But in order to do that, you have to have, at least in this day and age, in order to do that, you have to have access to technology tools, mm -hmm. access information, and create knowledge. So there's just no getting around the fact that you need technology to do both of those things. And what that technology looks like will always change. The actual technology tools will constantly change. And as I said, you know, books are our technology, audiobooks are technology, all of these things, they're technology that humans use to transmit information, 
um, retrieve information, create knowledge, all of that. And so uh, I, I like to remind people just to, to not get hook, hooked on or to get caught up on the individual tools because that will always change. But the reason why a library needs a 3D printer is because we empower communities through, through access to information and the opportunity to create that knowledge. And so typically when I talk about these things, I just go like way high level. Like I, I just kind of skip the whole conversation about, you know, well, a 3D printer is fun and you can make trinkets and stuff. I just, you know, that's that kind of conversation won't get you funding, right? It's not gonna get you influence in the community You've got to be able to speak confidently about how these types of technology tools can really kind of change change the game, change your life in terms of knowing that you have that power to create new things. So, um, yeah, yeah, that <laughs> it's it's true. I mean, and what what you were saying too is that that, that kind of language doesn't get funding. Well, right. You know, there's this idea that 3D printers really just create little trinkets or you're creating little toys. And it's like, what? Why does that matter? I don't know if libraries will always have makerspaces. They may not. Um, they, they may. Who knows? But I think it's, again, it's, it's the accessibility piece of it. It's the, you know, Libraries is kind of like a creative space, I think is really important as well. A place of experimentation. A lot of kids don't have 3D printers at home. I mean, I know you can get them now for really cheap, and so there's probably some more well-off kids that have that. But for everyone else in society, that technology is still prohibitively expensive. Sure. Another thing I, I like to talk about with, with 3D printing, especially... But laser cutting type stuff, too, is just that if you're looking to really empower the entrepreneurs in your city, they need to have those tools to do some prototyping. And we have seen that a lot at Space, where somebody's got an idea, they'll come in, they'll create a prototype. And we have had people launch businesses from the prototypes that they've developed there. And I think that's really, really powerful. And it's a great feeling professionally as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I I don't get sick of hearing the positive stories from the community. That's for exactly. sure. Exactly. And it's fun to see when uh, when I know with at at Sachem Public Library, when we first put our first three D printer out, it really showed. It brought the engineers out of the woodwork, and we've had some engineers prototype some things, and we've had some retired teachers come in and do some things to start, you know, to work on starting an Etsy business and things like that, and. Mm-hmm. Um, other kids, you know, trying to design different things using Tinkercad and things like that. So it's very satisfying from a professional level to see that you don't necessarily have to have a class to teach them every step along the way. You give them the tools, and then they use the tools. And that that goes for 3D printers, laser engravers, cutters, all that stuff. So it really is, it, professionally, you know, it, it's very satisfying to, to see that happen and see the, the light bulb go off, which I talk about a lot on this podcast. Uh, when yeah. you see that light bulb go off, and next thing you know, they're running with it. It's it's like when you teach a kid to ride a bike, and they finally figure it out, and now they're riding all over the place. Yeah, it's really cool. We're pretty lucky to be working in this profession, that's for sure. Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely for sure. So, you know, 
making in makerspaces are, are about so much more than just that 3D printer. And there, you know, there's some great examples all over the country, including DoSpace. Uh, but you know, let's start. You know, let's go back to the beginning. Let's really think about this for a minute because you brought it up earlier. But with regard to books being technology, without even knowing it, libraries have been fulfilling this goal. You know, of making for a very long time. Whether it's a quilting group or you know a cooking class because making is more than just the technology am I right yeah for sure I mean it's it's funny like I think we all think we're all really kind of clever with like the maker movement oh my gosh it's all trendy and stuff now but obviously making physical objects is like the most ancient thing you can do right sure (laughs) I mean it all started when we picked up a stick or something and used it as a tool I mean it you know, this is this is a very old school way of learning, um, learning how to do stuff. And, you know, as we've kind of launched into this digital revolution, you know, the uh, software has been so hot for so long. It's just been um, so popular to get into writing software that hardware for for I mean, I don't know, past 20 years or so. Uh, really has been kind of pushed off to the side. And so now we're seeing this huge movement for hardware and hardware enthusiasts and people who love working with their hands and building stuff. And I think the library is in a, in a really key place to be able to provide access to that. You know, there are libraries in nearly every town and city in the United States. And Um, Again, like what company wouldn't love to be able to say that? Um, So kind of as as libraries are known of these just free, inclusive community type places, uh, I think it's a perfect location to start makerspaces, innovation labs, all that kind of stuff. I'll say that, yeah, you know, when it when you think about making too, a lot of people only think of like hardware and software. but obviously making does delve into like sewing and knitting and yeah, cooking and creating all these different things with your hands. And um, yeah, I think it's really cool that libraries are in this place to be able to uh, kind of bring that to the people in their community. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, isn't it's, I find it really interesting that libraries without even really knowing it, um, have been a center for this for a really long time, as we were discussing. And, you know, following that same theme, expanding it that one more step and using, you know, uh, I'm using the, the finger quotes, makerspaces are more than, you know, just just digital, like you were saying before, that, you know, I think that there is um, a bigger issue with libraries and makerspaces. You know, uh, the bigger issue is that digital divide. Um, in other words, you know, the digital end of making, you know, can intimidate and scare some libraries because they feel that, you know, they don't have the digital acumen. Maybe they don't, they, they have an IT guy or maybe they don't even have an IT guy. And mm-hmm. especially, I, I like to focus a lot on the rural libraries we have in upstate New York um, because I think there's a disparity in funding between downstate New York, New York City, and upstate. And, you know, I give them credit because they're still doing it and they're doing it well. They're doing it as best they can. And, mm-hmm. and they are actually excelling with the funding that they do have but Mm -hmm. what would you say to a library that maybe doesn't have a lot of funds 
maybe um, you have an administration that's a little intimidated by the concept of having staff teach something that they don't know anything about yet. How would you, Mm -hmm. you know, how would you approach that? Yeah, you know, um, I don't hire folks that do space because they're techies. And I I get that question a lot of kind of like, how do you find all these, you know, uh, really highly qualified technologists work at DoSpace? And I'm like, I don't because I hire on on soft skills. I want to hire folks at DoSpace who love working with people and have great customer service and uh, can build a rapport with the community. So some of our staff at DoSpace, obviously, they're total nerds. They're, you know, coding all kinds of stuff in Linux that I don't even understand. Um, But some folks who work at DoSpace don't have a tech background. They love working with people and they're curious about technology. And that's kind of all you need for a lot of community tech initiatives. Um, For the stuff that you can't handle internally, Um, A really robust volunteer network can help you answer any tech question or address any need. So at DoSpace, we have 20 employees. That includes myself. Uh, There's kind of a realm of technology that we can handle internally with in terms of requests or equipment or whatever. And then there's this whole other realm that we can't really touch for a variety of reasons. Uh, maybe we don't have a PHP expert on staff, but we have someone asking us about that. You know, maybe we can run the 3D printers on a very basic level, but we don't internally have anybody who does like lots and lots of advanced 3D design. So at DoSpace, to provide an example to other libraries, we have um, we have a full-time volunteer coordinator. And we have very well-defined volunteer positions. On our website, you can actually take a look at that. We actually branded every volunteer position so that they feel like they're kind of part of their own club. That's really cool. Talk yeah. about Talk about buy-in. It's a lot of fun. They kind of have their own little badge. And so, for instance, we have uh, DoSpace. We call them 3D Gurus. And the gurus hang out in the 3D lab and they help to answer questions. They help us push through 3D prints through the printers. And just in general, they help us scale up uh, our services to the public with that. Um, but one of, the, one of the parts of our volunteer um, program that I think most people will find more interesting than those kind of like, it's a volunteer job, you come into the, the space and you um, do certain things. We have a a volunteer position called a a mentor position. And the idea behind this is that there's all this tech talent in Omaha. These people are really busy. (laughs) They have families. They're working 70 hours a week. They have incredible expertise, but it's hard to tap into that to benefit the community because they're so busy. Mm -hmm. They want to give back to the community, but they don't want to... Uh, do really lower level type stuff because they're high level, high functioning type people and they love really complex problems. So what we've been able to do is connect the dots between uh, DoSpace mentors who are subject matter experts and the members at DoSpace who need a little extra help. 
So somebody comes in, they say, I really need to talk to someone about WordPress. Like, I don't know what's going on with WordPress. It's driving me crazy. And I'm trying to learn this one particular thing. Then we connect them with a DoSpace mentor who's a community volunteer who comes in and sits down with them for an hour at DoSpace and just teaches them some stuff about WordPress. And so that it's not IT help. It's not like my computer's broken and it's, you know, whatever. It's more like I want to learn this particular skill and I really need some more in-depth help that pro- most likely DoSpace staff don't have an hour to sit down with somebody. Mm-hmm. So that has been a way for us to kind of take take what we offer the community and just level up because we at no point are we going to have someone on staff who's just sitting there, who's just a WordPress expert, who's just hanging out all day long. Right. right. So I'd say that if you're nervous about, you know, kind of jumping into the makerspace movement, getting some new software and those kinds of things. It's a, you don't have to know how to do it. You just need to know how to get to the people who know, right? Use all those reference skills that you learned, um, you know, in school and on the job and think, you know, you don't have to know how to answer every single question. So some good places to start. Most places have technology meetup groups so if you go on meetup.com, you'll be able to identify some tech user meetup groups. So here in Omaha, we have like the Omaha Ruby group or Ruby on Rails group or the uh, Nebraska JavaScript group and, you know, .NET and all those different types of things. If you get on there, you can identify this like grassroots tech community in your town or your city. Reach out to them, shoot them a message and say, hey, you know, we're thinking about doing a makerspace, you know, do you have any interest in that? Because even if somebody, let's say, is just a member of a, a JavaScript group, for instance, that doesn't mean that they haven't been tinkering with 3D printing on the side. You'd be kind of surprised, you know, when you're talking to a technologist, like, hey, have you tinkered with uh, any kind of VR, even though they're not a VR web or a VR software developer? A lot of them have because it's interesting and kind of played with it a little bit. So um, that'd be my advice in terms of trying to trying to get over that hump and that fear of the unknown. It makes a lot of sense, too, because you are using your skills to answer the question and that may, may not be the answer to the question that the person is looking for, but you're sending them in the right direction. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, so... Tell me more about what a, uh, a library with real budget constraints um, can do, you know, with regard to starting that makerspace. And, and, I mean, I know a whole bunch of different things you can do that are so incredibly low-tech but yet engaging and can still instill the idea of coding and all those other things that are very low-tech, very um, low-cost. But what, was some, what are some of the things you would suggest yeah both digitally and and low tech you know not even not even digital you know there's just yeah these days there's so many ways to get into it i mean you know you know you kind of mentioned like coding resources code.org has a lot of really great stuff i play a game sometimes i think it's called coded avengers 
And it's like these little guys and you, you have to write some code to get the guys to go moving around the, the thing. That's a lot like the hour of code tutorials and, and games that you can access through code.org. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of different apps that you can get for uh, your phone or mobile devices that you may have it in your building as well that are really fun coding games. So with that kind of stuff, I mean, with code.org, you don't have to pay for anything. You could run a, a coding program with kids, no cost, except for the cost of your staff time and operating and all that. But if the resource is online and free and all you have to do basically is just throw it together as a program and say, hey, we're going to start a coding club for kids from whatever age to whatever age and you just work off of online tutorials, that's super, super low cost. It, you know, to the organization, it's, it's pretty, pretty good. I'd say in terms of equipment, one of the things that we have been doing at DoSpace that's pretty low cost is um, getting onto sites like Kickstarter and being able to get some of the uh, new tech that's coming out before most other people get it. And one of the reasons we do this is so that, uh, you know, I like to call DoSpace a cutting edge tech space. And if I can continue to call it that, that means we really need to have some cutting edge stuff and that includes getting our hands on some of the technology out there that no one else, or uh, it hasn't reached the consumer market yet. And I will say that can be a little tricky, you know, if something doesn't get funded or, or whatever. Um, sometimes those projects don't pull through in the way that you'd want, but you can get some really interesting stuff off of there. You know, if your library can pull together $500 even $1,000, you can easily get a really solid 3D printer to get started with. And, you know, if you don't know how to use it, that's okay. You know, the maker movement is all about just kind of jumping in and trying it, you know. And I, I talk about that a lot in Do Space. I mean, our our name is Do Space, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> you kind of just have to jump in even if you don't know what you're doing. And yes, you might break it. And if you do, that's fine. The world is not going to crumble. Um, so part of that is mindset of kind of, yes, I can. You know, I, I know that it, it, it must be really kind of challenging to take a look at other maker spaces that do have very expensive equipment and those kinds of things and think, gosh, there's just no way that we could do that here. And I'd say, let's flip that mindset around and say, yes, I can do it. I will do it. And I don't have a ton of resources, but ain't nobody going to stop me type of an attitude, right? Um, even if it's just getting started with a coding tutorial online, that's um, that's better than nothing, right? So, mm-hmm. Sure. And it makes sense. And I think you, you really nailed it by saying, you know, you just got to go all out and you just got to figure it out. And look, none of us started like you said before in library land usually it's a second career unless you get that one you know really touched individual that wanted to do this from the time they were three um mm-hmm. you know so we are by trade you know a jack of all trades and master of none and the same thing goes for you know coding and, and all that other stuff too because this is all evolving and developing as we go along and something that's relevant now may not be relevant next week or next month or next year Mm-hmm. So it, it does make sense to uh, actually not become 
you know, a master in JavaScript or PHP. Because like you said before, the guy who knows all about WordPress is sitting in the corner staring at his phone because that's all he knows. Yeah. Um, so and taking that coding idea one step further, do, do you or uh, the Omaha Library deal with um, Girls Who Code and, and that kind of thing? Because that's a really great resource for, for getting girls out there. Yeah, yeah, we do. So last year in September, we started our first uh, Girls Who Code club, and we had the largest one in the city. I think we had 22 girls when we started and 18 finished. That's great. Yeah, yeah, it was incredible. You know, the Girls Who Code club is really intense. Our club met every single Sunday, except for holidays, from September through April, May. So it was a it was a pretty intense program. So, um, you know, it it wasn't just kind of like a one off type workshop. I mean, these girls are really learning and development. And so we're uh, our community our our director of community learning. She's working right now to get together our second um, our second class of girls who code kids um, uh, this fall. So we're pretty excited about That's that. That's great. That's great because girls. Honestly, I think girls. Um, are better at it than than than, gir- than boys are. Girls are pretty good. Girls pretty are great. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Do you, Do you use Ozobots at all? Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, so we have at DoSpace, we have these things we call tech kits, and this is basically a bin with different kinds of technology in it. And so we've used um, Ozobots in programs as well as in our tech kit bins. Um, what's in these bins changes over time. I know we um, have added some new stuff recently, and um, we've definitely broken some stuff. Um, I'm all for breaking stuff. Yeah. Oh boy, we've had we had some Spiros in our tech kits, and man, we just we just beat those all the crap. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's kind of how we manage all the different little pieces of technology like that that we have is that you can grab a tech kit, take it to our front desk and check it out onto your card so that you can use it within the building and kind of hack hack on different things. Um, and that can be anywhere from a really, really easy uh, device that a preschooler would use all the way through, you know, you can check out like a Raspberry Pi with like a monitor and kind of have at it. So... Pretty fun. That is cool. So one component of makerspaces, and I use the term makerspace loosely because it could be just about anything at this point, um, that people don't seem to understand is that there is an element of entertainment to all of this. Um, I actually had a patron come up to me while I was running. We have the HTC Vive, and we were running you know, running the VR program. And uh, an older gentleman came up and said, since when did libraries become a responsibility to ent- entertain everyone? You know, he said it in kind of a condescending way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I find this a, a, a pretty funny question, um, all sarcasm aside. Um, how would, I know how I would answer the patron, and I know how I did answer the patron. Tell me how you would answer that patron. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people think that, right? Like, even with 3D printers, like, well, what does that do other than print little toys or something? Right. But people learn through play and tinkering and experimentation, and that's just human nature. Uh, you know, especially when you're when you're dealing with really complex and often abstract things like coding. 
you can't just sit a kid down and be like, okay, here's terminal, go after it. You know, like it's just that's not that's not how it works. You've got to engage them in a way that is approachable to them. And so uh, using play is, you know, and I, I have never worked directly with really young children. But for those folks that I know who have, they have said, you know, again and again, that using play in learning and in education is just really, really critical. I'm sure there are kids librarians, youth librarians and, and teen teen folks who can attest to that fact that, you know, if you're trying to get a message across to someone, you've got to meet people where they can uh, have a shared interest. Um, so It does make sense. And libraries have been in the business of entertaining for like forever. I mean, yeah. I said to the gentleman, you ever read a fiction novel? Fiction <laughs> book? That's not necessarily, you know, uh, it's not nonfiction, and you're reading it for the entertainment purpose. And you ever take out a, remember the days of VHS? Did you ever take out a VHS cassette or maybe a DVD or a, a music CD? So we've been involved, we being libraries, been involved in entertaining people for a very long time. And now that it's made digital, that, that digital jump, um, I think some people are grappling with that idea of why why are you doing this? This isn't a media that library libraries usually and traditionally work with. So yeah. there is going to be that pushback from time to time. Um, you know, but, you know, once you have a, a space like that up and running, um, it really is only half the battle. You need to get the word out. Now, I'm sure DoSpace does a lot of different advertising. Uh, I, I'm sure you want to talk about that big sign on the side of your building. Because <laughs> when I saw your computers in libraries, that was the first thing I, that, that gave me the wow, you know, the, talking about that sign that you have. Um, but how important is advertising to get the word out? Because it's not like Field of Dreams where you build it and they will come. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, advertising and marketing is, I have learned that it's it's much more complex than probably I ever, I ever thought before because it's it's not one thing. It's, it's a, um, a, to effectively get the word out about your organization, it's just like a thousand little things that add up to big impact. Um, yeah, we, we do have a large LED sign on the outside of our building, which I know how spoiled I am on that. Like, it is so incredible. We can throw up a program or event or something like that on the screen and shoot it out in front of an intersection where almost 100,000 cars go through every day. Wow. Yeah. So um, that is just, it's really incredible. And our staff at Do Space have done a wonderful job at um, keeping the content on that sign uh, uh, really interesting. I'll say that, you know, when we first started Do Space, we did a really big push to get the word out because. You know, when you're doing something new, a lot of people are just going to wonder, what is this? You know, why does this, why is this here? How can I use it? And so we did a really big uh, marketing and advertising push at the very beginning to just get that word out. Um, that involved um, some billboards. We did some, uh, some ads in the newspaper, uh, some social media ads. You can also boost Facebook posts for um, a pretty reasonable rate as well. Um, some PR initiatives to make sure that, especially the local media, 
um, or, or is helping to tell the stories of what is accomplished here by our members. Um, but I, I will say that, you know, when it comes right down to it, it's word of mouth is the most powerful thing that a library can kind of shoot for. And so our membership, when you sign up for it, we do have an optional thing that says like, you know, how, how'd you find out about us? And that the number one thing on that we get from that is word of mouth is like somebody told me about it. Um, so anything you can do to provide really cool experiences for your existing members and users and making sure that they're telling everybody that is, you know, that really helps people to come and visit. So, you know, and that's one thing that I always say, and I'm sure if people listen to other episodes of the podcast, they're sick of hearing me say it at this point, but libraries are really good at reaching people who already come in, but it's the people who don't come in. Um, that are the harder ones to get. Those are the real gets of, you know, of library land. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, how do you get people to come in? I mean, obviously, do space is a little bit different model than a regular library, but how do you get people to come in who haven't visited since they were a kid or maybe not at all? I mean, other than word of mouth, you know, what else can you do? I mean, that's, this, is, this is the age-old question in libraries. Yeah, and it's it's especially difficult for public libraries because they serve everyone. Right. You know, there's no one specific audience that a library targets. And so because of that, I mean, it's just all over the board. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, what specific audiences are we trying to target at DoSpace? But like a public library, we serve everyone as well. We, we kind of suffer from this challenge of, we are, we, we come across almost as intimidating, I think, to some folks who are beginners or um, folks who didn't grow up with technology and they see our building and they come inside and they're just like, this isn't for me. Um, like, I don't fit in here. So we have been, we've had to be really intentional about making sure people know that Do Space is free. And that it's a really welcoming and kind of inclusive space. And one of the ways we've been able to do that is pulling in, you know, staff and volunteers who represent a variety of communities, a, a variety of ages, um, and making sure that people feel really comfortable. Um, you know, for for a public library, uh, it is so much harder just because public libraries have a much broader focus and they offer so much more. You know, DoSpace, our, our mission and vision is very focused on kind of one thing, and that's tech, technology access and learning. And we don't do anything else beyond that. Uh, I think there's a lot of value in being kind of a, a little bit of a hard ass on your mission um, to keep you, keep you on, uh, on track. But for libraries who, who are trying to get the word out, one of the things I, I like to talk about is, again, kind of getting back to that, that core vision of why public libraries exist. Because there, are, there are, are a lot of people in society who will not use your library. And you just have to accept that. They're not going to use it. Don't bother. Right? right, exactly. But you can appeal to those folks and turn them into library advocates by talking about why libraries exist. 
I'll tell you, I now that I don't work at the library anymore, I don't use it as much as I once did because it's not as convenient for me where I live. But I understand why it, a healthy democracy cannot exist without public libraries. And that is one of the many reasons why I support libraries. And so, you know, if you care about freedom of thought and freedom of access and all of that, I think that you can get behind the idea of why a library exists. Even if the programs and services there don't necessarily speak to you specifically, that, that kind of doesn't matter. And one of the reasons why I'm talking about this, there's a really wonderful book and a TED Talk called Start With Why. And um, the guy who did it is Simon Caldwell, maybe? I might be screwing up his last name. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and I, I really love that idea of you've got to start with why and then answer the what question. And I recently wrote something on medium.com, and it was called Stop Telling People to Love Libraries. <laughs> and it was funny. This post went sort of like, I guess, viral in the library community. It's had 14,000 views by now. And in that post, I talk a little bit about this. Like, you know, if you're trying to get people to come to your library, don't talk to them about your, your databases or the specific things that you do. Um, you know, if you're really looking for true advocates, talk about why a library exists, because just about anyone can, can get behind that, I think. It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. You know, and libraries are going to continue to evolve, whether or not, you know, you get 100% of your community in, which is not going to happen. I mean, think of it in terms of a store. You're, not, you're still not going to get 100% of that community in. Now, stores obviously are geared towards men, women, kids, or whatever. Um, yeah. But as far as a catch-all, I think libraries do a great job of trying to reach out and provide services for everybody in the community. And, you know, and that's always the, the hard part is trying to, you know, reach all those members of the community. Like right now, the hot new trend is reaching out to the 20-somethings to get them in, the 20-somethings and 30-somethings. And, uh, you know, everybody, every library has a different approach. You know, we all share ideas, but we all have different approaches because every community is different. So, you know, 20 and 30-somethings in one community may be doing something different than 20 and 30-somethings in a separate community. So mm -hmm. it, it's good that we collaborate and talk and and you know we have all those things in place to try to figure that all out yeah um, so it, it 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 is difficult too because it goes across socioeconomic uh uh you know groups and racial lines and you know all these different things that make us individuals so it's kind of hard to have one place for everyone when everyone is such a different individual yeah yeah it is it's it's tough, but it is really specific to each community. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for entertaining all these crazy questions. And, <laughs> of course. And for, you know, sharing all of the things that you've learned with Do Space with, with our listeners. And um, we're going to take a short break. And when we get back, we are going to be asking you our top 10 library questions, or what we now call the 032 list, which is the Dewey number for top 10 lists. And we have to give a thank you to Melanie Cardone for the idea. So we will be back in just a moment and have more questions.
Hi, and we're back talking to Rebecca Stavick, the executive director of Do Space in Omaha, Nebraska. And she is our next participant, or is it victim, of the 032 list, which corresponds to the Dewey number for top 10 lists. Uh, the top 10 list is, uh, <clears throat> is a list of librarian-related questions. So questions were inspired by the website Literary Hub, which is a website which gives a lot of informative information for libraries and library professionals and also does some really cool stories and interviews. You can see their work by visiting www.lithub.com, and this is where my partner Bob would say, why are you using the Ws? Nobody uses Ws anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so check them out. They do great, a great job educating and informing the library world on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. So, question number one. What did you want to be when you were a child? Ah, yes, good question. I wanted to be a meteorologist when I was a child. That's great. Yeah, I I grew up on a small farm in South Dakota, and when you're out there on a farm and there's not a ton of things to do, it's really fun to watch the clouds. And so I would watch the clouds with my dad, who was a a scientist, and I was so fascinated by it. It's like, I'm definitely getting into meteorology. That's really, that's a good one. (laughs) Uh, So what uh, was your first memory of a library and who brought you to the library for the first time? You know, growing up on a farm, I didn't have a ton of access to to public libraries. I'm sure I used the library that was in my elementary school, but even that must have been pretty small because the school itself was really tiny. Um, but probably the first memory that I can really think of is uh, being in about fourth grade. My mom was a grad student at SDSU in Brookings, South Dakota. And she would take us to the academic library there at SDSU because she needed to get some work done. Mm-hmm. And me and my brother would hang out in the library. And, you know, we didn't know anything about academic libraries. We were just kids. And it was a lot of fun just kind of like roaming around and finding crazy stuff on the shelves and taking naps. and <laughs> Taking I'm naps sure, at the library. I love it. So the librarians there kind of hated us, but we had a lot of fun there. So. <laughs> Okay, so I, we may have covered this earlier, but it's part of the question, so we just have to ask it again. Uh, when did you decide to work in a library, and if not, what was your first career path? And we talked about librarians, you know, it being a second career, and you talked about being a history major. So tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what, when did you decide to work in a library and what you thought you were going to do? Yeah, sure. So I, um, as an undergraduate, it took me a while to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. There wasn't anything I was particularly passionate about. And so I just started taking the classes and those turned out to be history classes. And then I thought, well, hell, maybe I should just do history as a major. Um, So uh, librarianship is my first career, but it's kind of delayed. I didn't kind of jump into it right away after my undergrad So I decided to get into grad school. Um, I finished my MLIS in 2012, but I started working in libraries as a library aide in 2010 uh, when I first moved here to Omaha. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So who is your favorite fictional librarian? For sure, it's Giles, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm sure all librarians say that, but... Um, he's just the coolest, and I'm a huge Buffy and Joss Whedon fan, so 
for sure, Giles. That's cool. We've gotten that answer before. We've also gotten Batgirl and uh, there's a Jedi librarian. Um, oh, cool. We even got the, the hacky one, Noel Wiley, which you should have stayed with ER, but that's another whole story. <laughs> what would you be doing if you were not working? Well, you don't work in a library anymore, but what would you be doing if you're not working in a library type organization? You know, I'd probably be doing one of two things. I'd either be running a tech startup of some kind or I'd be working with animals. When I was younger and kind of like right out of college, I worked for a humane society and I've always been a huge animal advocate. And um, I just I think that people who work with animals are just incredible. And so, yeah, I'd probably be doing that. Okay, so what is, and this, this question has changed since we first started asking these questions. What's your favorite section of the library? And it used to mean fiction, nonfiction, mystery, and now it's morphed into, you know, the computer lab, the 3D printers, DVDs. So have at it. Yeah. Well, my favorite, sec- my favorite section of Do Space is our 3D lab, like makerspace area. My favorite section of a public library is the paperbacks section. I just love those like brand new paperbacks that no one has ever really read or opened yet. And I'm fascinated by those kind of like the crazy uh, fantasy romance ones where it's like, like a half wolf man romance type stuff or like some of the uh, Western paperbacks. I think they're kind of fun. I I don't read a ton of paperbacks um, in my free time, but if I'm in a library, I always go to the paperback section and look around. Yeah, because there's some crazy (laughs) crazy, uh, stuff going on in those paperbacks, right? Oh, for sure. Okay, if you had an infinite space and budget, what would you add to, in your case, do space, but you could also put it in a library? Yeah, well, do space... If I had infinite budget and space and all that, I would love to add a whole section. I'd love to add onto the building and do a section that's all about um, VR and AR and kind of getting into AI and machine learning and all that kind of stuff. Um, The really kind of super cutting edge stuff. I'd love to do something with that at Do Space. Um, And... Yeah, I mean, at a public library, if I was running a public library, I'd love to, uh, you know, my favorite parts of a public library, when you're just spending time there, is a lot of comfy couches, a lot of um, spots that are great and conducive for working. So like standing desks and different things like that, that you might typically see in a co-working space. I'd love to see that as part of a public library. So what do you love about We'll do the slash do space and your library. Um, what I love about do space is um, uh, when I go into work and I see our computer lab completely filled with people, our littles lab and our active learning space and our 3D lab, it's just completely chock full of people. And I'm sure that a lot of libraries are feeling this right now because it's still summer and it's just the facilities and the services are just being so used. I love seeing that. Um, 
having this opportunity to build something from nothing has just been really incredible. But to see all these people there enjoying it, um, for me, that's, that's really rewarding. So let's see, what is the, now not necessarily the worst thing, but the weirdest thing you've ever seen happen in your experience, both with do space and in the library world. Yeah, the weirdest thing. I mean, I, I remember doing reference at OPL and getting some pretty, pretty crazy questions. I'm sure all reference librarians have gotten that, though. But, you know, at DoSpace, one of the uh, weirdest or some funniest things that have happened, um, you know, we discovered that our membership cards do flush down the toilet completely. Um, we, we have had some like bean, bean bag fights, bean bags can be used as a weapon. I mean, <laughs> that's been pretty crazy. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, sure. Sure. Okay. Now I don't know what you call the people who come into do space. Like, you know, for libraries, it's a patron. I don't know if you call them customers cause they're not really buying anything, but who is your favorite regular? Do you have yeah. one? We call them members, uh, do space members. Um, you know, I'd say that my favorite member, and I'm going to cheat a little bit because this person's uh, actually a volunteer, but uh, there's a lady named Marple, and she is just a total, she's just so lovely. You know, sometimes like when you talk to someone and they're just, just like reeking of happiness, they just, their positivity is just kind of spilling out all over the place. And Marvel, uh, she is a senior citizen. You wouldn't believe it if you looked at her, but she's um, in her 70s. And she is one of our Juice Space advocates. And she's been with us since the beginning. She, she smiles at everyone. She welcomes people when they come in the door. She gives little ad hoc tours and... I've had a real pleasure seeing her around the building and, and working with her as a volunteer. Um, so she's kind of my, my favorite member of the public. I mean, she's a Deuce Face member for sure, but I'm definitely cheating a little bit on that one because she's a volunteer. But. It's okay. There's no cheating in this list, so don't worry. Yeah. We haven't, there's, there's, I don't think anybody's ever really cheated. <laughs> so, okay, again, I'm going to bifurcate this by saying both Deuce Space and Libraries. Um, and this is our last question. What are people without library cards or do space cards missing out on? Yeah. You know, uh, people who don't have a do space card, I think they're, they're missing out on that opportunity to become part of the tech community. And whether that's accessing our resources or just coming in and meeting other people, one of the things I've found in our computer lab area is that some of our members talk to each other and try to resolve issues before they actually come to our desk. And I see some community building just naturally happening there in the space. And so if you don't have a card, you're not able to meet new people and um, become part of that community. You know, with a library card, I, um, you know, I, I do think of, again, I'm going to go back to that connection to democracy and I think that having a library card is um, uh, very much about you know being an American you know mm -hmm. and 
you don't have a library card, there's like this core piece of democracy I feel like you're missing out on. And um, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great. That's a great answer, though. I can't think of anything better than that. I guess so. No, well, it works. It uh, it really works. So, I really have to thank you. You've been such a good sport answering our questions, and and you know, I had a lot of fun interviewing you for the podcast, and I hope you had a good time too. Yeah, I did. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Yeah, this is this is really great. And it's always good to have a really good guest who has a lot to say, and and you really shared a lot. So I thank you for that. So don't forget, um, if you're in Nebraska, check out Do Space. Uh, what's it's 74th and Dodge? You said it's close, 72nd. And 72nd. Dodge. I was close. I was only yeah. up by two blocks. <laughs> so Do Space's website is www.dospace.com, um, and see some of the great things that they're doing. Their website is great too. I I really enjoyed looking at the site, um, and. You you speaking anywhere soon? You're going to be presenting or? You know, I don't think I have anything on the schedule for the next few months, but I'm definitely looking at, you know, maybe speaking some more into 2018 at some of the big conferences. I just spoke at ALA, when was that, a few weeks back. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so that was a lot of fun, too. Yeah, I hope you come back to computers and libraries, too, because I really enjoyed that, that presentation. Um. So, and if somebody wanted to get in touch uh, with you about speaking engagements and things like that, I guess Twitter, at Rebecca Stavik? Yeah, perfect. Excellent. So, that's all the time we have for this episode. Um, but if you have any questions or comments on our show, uh, go to the contact us section of our website, www.thelibrarypros.com. Yes, Bob, I used the three W's. Uh, where we'll also have notes and links from all of our episodes. And you can check us out on Twitter at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash librarypros. And please don't forget to subscribe on RSS, iTunes, Android, email, and Google Play. And remember, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob, and not those of the Sachem Public Library, the M.S. Clark Memorial Library, which is Bob's library, or any other library. So we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro, and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch. <laughs>